Hello, and welcome back to the Bible Companion series with P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Exodus chapter 20. Introduction to the Ten Commandments. Now we come to a well-known chapter. Even those who have never read the Bible know of what's called the Ten Commandments. Further, we are taught in Romans 2, 12-15 that even those who have never heard have the law written on their consciences, for God has made all people everywhere to understand what he requires and what he forbids. Most unreached cultures have laws forbidding theft and murder. It says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing and at other times even defending them. Scripture refers to these as the Ten Commandments in several places. Exodus 34.28 says, Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights without eating bread or drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 4.13 says, He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And Deuteronomy 10.1-5 refers to the replacement tablets that were written by God, not Moses. Moses only brought the blank tablets up to God. Also, that before the official Ark of the Covenant was constructed, God instructed Moses to make a wooden ark to house them in. At that time, the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also make a wooden ark. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Then you are to put them in the ark. So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before, the Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I had made, as the Lord commanded me, and there they are now. There was a time when every child memorized the Ten Commandments. They were not mere suggestions, but a brief summary of moral imperatives that shaped a just society. Eight of them are negative, you shall not, implying that God gave the law to convict us of sin. Sinners do not like to be told they are sinners. Jesus said people loved darkness rather than light and would not come to the light to have their deeds exposed similar to the reason why criminals don't go to the police station of their own accord. But conviction is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize we are lost before we will desire to be saved. We need to recognize we are ill before we will go to a physician. Like a mirror that shows us the dirt on our faces, the law drives sinners to the Savior. But just as you wouldn't try to wash your face with a mirror, Neither should you try to find acceptance with God by keeping the law, which you wouldn't be able to anyway. Some people, if you were to ask what God expects of them, 
They'd answer either keep the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule or the Sermon on the Mount. Or failing that, just try your best. We're only human after all. Others see the Ten Commandments as a ladder to heaven, which is required of all people. Still others view them as optional, much like an exam which instructs answer six of the following ten questions. That the Bible is called the Word of God is based on the fact that no less than 1,150 times we are told God spoke, God said, the Lord said, or this is what the Lord says. We are also told that he told Moses or Joshua or the prophets to write what they have seen and heard from him. But this is the only place where we see God himself writing. The Ten Commandments are also later referred to as the Decalogue, or Ten Words, from Deca, Ten, and Logos, Word. They are direct commands and precepts given in the second person. It's spoken directly to the people as individuals responsible to obey. Other law codes of the time, like the Code of Hammurabi or other recently discovered Mesopotamian written laws, were styled more in the form of case law or if-then statements, listing an offense with a penalty if the offense occurred. They are also divided roughly into two parts. The first four are vertical, relating to our relationship with God. This is commonly called the first table. The final six are horizontal, relating to our relationship with others. This is commonly called the second table. A few include the basis for the law, such as the creation precedent for the Sabbath rest. The Ten Commandments have also been referred to as the moral law, or a transcript of God's holiness. He is everything we are not. It is an unattainable standard in this life, but one that give, God gives nonetheless to reveal to us our sin and our inability to keep his laws in our own strength. God would then go on to give a total of 613 laws Israel was to keep, but these ten were the overarching commands, while the others spelled out specifically how one was to demonstrate this love for God and his neighbor. The other laws make no sense without them. Verses 1-17, through 17, the Ten Commandments. The first commandment spoken by God was, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, before me or in opposition to me. This is appropriate in light of what he had done for them in bringing them out of Egypt after soundly defeating their gods. Pantheism, or the worship of many gods, is incompatible with monotheism, which is the worship of one god, and is nonsensical since all others are non-gods. We are to worship the Creator, not the creature. Even in the New Covenant, we are still expected to love God supremely. Jesus summed up the whole of the law. In Matthew 22:34-40, he says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In saying this, he was not replacing the Ten Commandments, but summarizing them, 
showing how they are fulfilled. Do you want to know how to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? See the first four commandments. Do you want to know how to love your neighbor as yourself? See the final six commandments. The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This would be repeated in Exodus 34:17. Do not make any idols. This would include superstitious thoughts, which fear evil spirits or the unknown, or a trust in magic or chance. Later, God would impose the death penalty for idolatry. The basis of this was the jealousy of God, which provokes his wrath. Unlike our jealousy, which is sinful, God's jealousy is right and good, because he alone is worthy of worship, and therefore demands we love him supremely. Unlike us, he is not insecure, needing our love to feel complete. Rather, we should love him simply because he is the only truly lovable being in all the universe. In Deuteronomy 32:21, God says, They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. This was a prophecy about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. Even in the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas told the people in Lystra who worshipped many gods and had even begun worshipping them, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Idols are often referred to as worthless. This compares them to God who alone is worthy. Even the word worship refers to the worthiness of the one we adore and revere. Idolatry is worshipping anything other than God as if it were God. During the time of the Old Testament, the surrounding nations had idols in the form of animals, like the golden calf, people, like Nebuchadnezzar, hybrids of the two, like Dagon, the half-fish, half-man god, and the host of heaven, stars, sun, or moon. Later, God would tell them that since he had no body, it was absurd to try to make an image of him. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of its inheritance, as you now are. 
So this command also carries over into the New Testament. The Apostle John says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Although idolatry is still practiced all over the world, even if we don't bow down before a statue, we worship idols whenever we put anything before God as first in our hearts. John Calvin said, The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us from his mother's womb is expert in inventing idols. The Roman Catholic Church, in order to avoid their very clear violation of this command with all their statues and icons, skips over this command and instead omits the second commandment while dividing the tenth in order to maintain the total number of ten. This makes the fourth commandment about the Sabbath in third place and the fifth commandment the fourth, etc. Please research this for yourself in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's there very clearly. A word about the phrase, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Moses makes it clear later on that parents are not to be punished for the sins of their parents or vice versa, but that each person would bear their own sin. Deuteronomy 24.16 says parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. This was demonstrated in the rebellion of Korah in number 16. The men were killed when the earth swallowed them up, but the children were not. We see this in Numbers 26. Ezekiel 18, 4-32 explains this in more detail, but essentially it says, The one who sins is the one who will die. Therefore, we must ask what this, reverse, what this verse refers to. When a person lives in rebellion to God with all that is involved in it, children will experience the consequences and impact of such disobedience. The effect of disobedience becomes so embedded that its effect is felt several generations on. They may grow up to disdain God and also live contrary to God's laws, thereby drawing the wrath of God on themselves based on their own actions. The difference in consequences, punishment, or love to subsequent generations served as both a warning and a motivation to teach their children to love and obey God. The third commandment forbids swearing. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. To use God's name in such a way as to bring dishonor to his character or deeds was to misuse his name. I explained it this way to my children and students. We must not use God's name except for prayer to him or to speak about him. This comes with a stern warning of impending judgment for such a serious breach. It is also related to taking an oath in God's name, something we see even now in a court of law. It acknowledges that God sees us and hears what we say, therefore we promise to speak truthfully. To utter a lie after swearing to tell the truth is to question God's existence and omniscience and his right to judge our words. Leviticus 24, 10-16 records an instance where the death penalty was enforced for blasphemy. Blasphemy is profane talk, speaking sacrilegiously about God. Thankfully, we are now in the New Covenant, but our speech is still to be guarded. James 5:12 says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. 
All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Jesus also said, But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This tells us that we do not need to punctuate our words with the name of God to prove we are being truthful, but our lives are to exhibit truthfulness at all times. Over time, like so many of the other laws, the Jews made rules around uh, uh, to build a hedge around the law to prevent inadvertently breaking it. God said not to take his name in vain, so they began to call God Hashem, which means the name, kind of like how Macbeth is referred to as the Scottish play. Today, people not only take God's name to their lips lightly or flippantly with their expressions of OMG for the most mundane reasons, but they curse the name of Jesus Christ even more often than they use crude language. This shows that Jesus Christ is God, since it is his name and not the name of Buddha or Muhammad or any other false god that is cursed. The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. It says remember because the concept of resting on that day was not new. It was known since the creation. For some of the festivals, God tells them why they are to celebrate it. For others, he just tells them what to do, when and how, with no explanation. But the Sabbath is one that he explains. The reason for this ordinance goes back to creation. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It is a blessed day, and we are blessed by it. In Deuteronomy 5.15, he also links its observance back to their exodus from Egypt. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. He created it for our good. We need to rest from our work. We need to focus on God and be thankful. The word Sabbath means to rest. The Sabbath represented our rest from trying to work to earn our salvation. In the New Covenant, because of what Jesus did, we are now in the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, as Jesus said in Mark 2.27. Christ allowed works of necessity, charity, and piety, says Matthew Henry. But, like the hedge around the command not to take God's name in vain, so here. God said not to work, so they defined what work was. An example of this is the Sabbath elevator at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. It stops at every floor, so you don't have to do the work of pressing an elevator button. This working on the Sabbath was a point on which the Jewish leadership clashed with Jesus on many occasions. He dared to heal on the Sabbath and allowed his disciples to glean and eat on the Sabbath. 
He was so gentle with sinners, but he would not tolerate the hypocrisy and harshness of the religious leaders. Matthew 15, 7-9 is a good example of this. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. The Jewish leaders were upset because the disciples didn't practice ceremonial cleansing. But Jesus was more concerned about the way the Pharisees set aside God's law in favor of their traditions. In this case, people were getting out of caring for their parents by saying they had promised the money to God. They were practicing the letter of the law and giving the appearance of holiness while ignoring the spirit of the law and neglecting the care of their parents. God doesn't care for lip service. He sees our hearts and our motives. In the Old Covenant, breaking the Sabbath was punishable by death. We'll examine the change from Sabbath to Lord's Day another time. This is the only one of the Ten Commandments that does not continue into the New Covenant. It was the only ceremonial law among the other moral laws. And in all the lists of sins in the New Testament, Sabbath breaking is never one of them. Romans 14, 4-6 says it is a matter of preference, similar to the choice to eat meat. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. In fact, Colossians 2, 16-17 nullifies this law. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. We'll examine this in greater detail in other passages. The fifth commandment was, Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The stability of the family unit corresponds to stability in society. Part of this depends on reverence and respect for, of parents by children. While young, they are to submit to their authority, and when they are older, they are to continue to show respect and care for them. Under the Old Covenant, rebellion to parental authority could be punishable by death. We're not told if this possible scenario ever occurred. Ezekiel 22 links contemptible treatment of parents as one of the reasons for exile. The Apostle Paul applied this to believers. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Adult believers are to care for their elderly parents and so relieve the church from this burden. To fail to do so would be to deny the faith and act worse than an unbeliever. Jesus said this as well in Matthew 15:3-6. The sixth commandment was you shall not murder. Some versions of the Bible say you shall not kill, but it refers to intentional murder, not killing animals or executing criminals. Included in this would be suicide, which is self-murder. 
The basis of this law relates to the command given after the flood. God promised to judge and called for capital punishment for murder because people are made in the image of God. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Later, God would provide for the safety of people guilty of inadvertent manslaughter through cities of refuge until their case could be heard. But these places could not be used to shelter murderers. In the New Covenant, Jesus elevates it so that even anger, hatred, or murderous thoughts were as serious as murder. The seventh commandment was, you shall not commit adultery. God instituted marriage between a man and a woman at creation, before the fall. Even prior to the giving of the law, it was seen as a great sin, and great wickedness and sin against God. This commandment protected the sacredness of the marriage relationship. Violation of this command carried the death penalty for both parties during the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, adultery is still condemned, although it no longer carries the death penalty. Because marriage represents the relationship between God and the Church, it was meant to be exclusive and permanent. Jesus expanded this commandment as well, to equate lustful looks and thoughts with adultery. The Apostle James ties all the commands together as a chain, saying if a person breaks one command, it's as if they've broken all of them. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. We should be as afraid of defiling our bodies through sexual sin as we are of having our bodies destroyed by murder. The Apostle Paul tells us, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He ties it back to our redemption at the cost of the death of God's Son and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because Jesus equated lustful thoughts with adultery itself, we should avoid anything that stimulates such thoughts, such as images, books, or conversations of a sexual nature. The problem of pornography within the church is rampant. The Eighth Commandment was, You shall not steal. The concept of private ownership of property and possessions was an important principle of societal stability So, and dishonest acquisition of another person's goods was incongruent. This theft also applied to kidnapping people, which carried the death penalty. Theft of goods or livestock required restitution. Honest business practices were included in this. They were forbidden to move landmarks, seize property of widows and the fatherless, or use dishonest scales in business. Theft itself did not result in the death of the offender by law, but if they were killed by the homeowner when they were in the process of breaking in at night, or if they kidnapped a person.
This can range from acts of war and plunder, to defrauding someone, to failing to pay their debts, failure to pay their employees fairly, to extravagance beyond their means, to accepting unneeded charity, to not speaking up if one is given too much change after a purchase. Our culture, while enacting and enforcing laws against theft, especially white-collar crime, generally see it as a victimless crime. They make excuses about most sins to downplay their severity. Everyone steals sometime, or it's just a little white lie, or I'm only human. But God makes no such allowances. In the New Covenant, we are exhorted to no longer steal. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Kidnapping is also still forbidden. The Apostle Peter spoke of theft in the context of suffering. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. The contrast of this command is to work hard to obtain what we need in an honest way, to be thankful and content with what we have, and to trust God to provide for our needs, which he is well able to do. The application of the golden rule, as it's called, would prevent our injuring our fellow human beings. Jesus said, So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The ninth commandment was, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This command primarily relates to witnesses in court being truthful so that there can be justice and a stable society. Most societies recognize the importance of this and have strict penalties for perjury. Secondarily, it condemns lying at any time. The death penalty applied for this commandment only in the case of false prophets. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. In the case of a false witness, if it is discovered in the course of the trial, then they will receive the penalty that would have been due to the defendant if their lies would have been successful in condemning them. This may have included death. An example of this is in 1 Kings 21.13, where Jezebel had two scoundrels bring false accusations and testimony against Nabal, resulting in his being stoned to death for his property uh, being seized by King Ahab. Here we have three commands broken, lying, murder, and theft. Lies are characteristics of unbelievers. We are born liars. Psalm 58.3 says, Even from birth the wicked go astray, from the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Other sins of speech include gossip, slander, flattery, malicious talk, filthy jesting, and anything said about someone designed to hurt or deceive our neighbor, to ruin their reputation, or good name. How much this command is broken every day among all classes of people. Such sins are always included in the lists of sins, along with sins such as murder and adultery. God doesn't think they are insignificant. Believers were encouraged to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. In the New Covenant, false witnesses were brought forward against Jesus and Stephen. Both times it resulted in the unlawful death of the defendant. 
Jesus said that lying originated in the Garden of Eden with Satan, the father of lies. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Christians should be truthful. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. In the description of the New Jerusalem, believers are inside and liars are outside. It's, it says, Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Revelation 22.15 the Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. While the laws against murder, theft, perjury, and adultery are actions that can be seen and cause injury to others, coveting occurs in the mind and is the wrong desire to have something that will gratify ourselves. We cannot see the thoughts of others, nor can they see ours, but God does. Our thoughts and motives are not hidden from him. They are often the precursors to the actions mentioned. When we covet an item that someone else owns, we may steal it. When we covet the spouse of someone else, it may lead to adultery. When we hate someone, it may lead to murder. When we desire the downfall of our enemy, we may perjure ourselves. Coveting is yearning, craving, or desiring to possess or have something not our own. It's the opposite of contentment with what God has given us. It's that desire for forbidden fruit. When challenged about ceremonial rules, Jesus said the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. He also said these things indicate the overall tenor of our lives and represent the overflow of our hearts. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. He also warned against covetousness, because there is more to life than possessions. Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. The Apostle Paul also warns his readers, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. While we may flatter ourselves that we have not broken the big commandments of murder, theft, perjury, or adultery, none of us would dare to say we have never coveted something that didn't belong to us. Paul showed how love fulfilled the law. 
let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Rather than flatter ourselves that we keep these laws, these commandments should make us put a hand over our mouths. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. How can we dare defend ourselves? We are guilty in thought, word, and deed. We need to repent, cry out to God for mercy, and appeal to Jesus, the one and only Savior who can forgive us for our rebellion. Verses 18 through 21, the people's response. The sights and sounds that accompanied the giving of the law, thunder and lightning and trumpet sounds, smoke and earthquakes, caused the people to tremble with fear. Prior to nuclear holocausts, displays of nature were the most terrifying thing a person could experience. There was no need to fear they would rush forward out of curiosity. They stayed at a distance. They even said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Even this one encounter with a small demonstration of God's power was enough for the people to think they could die. They were not flippant in their attitudes towards God. They would rather have Moses continue to be the go-between, and they promised to listen. They believed him now that God had spoken to him. The writer of the Hebrews spoke of this day. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them and compared it to the joyful mountain with Jesus as our mediator instead of Moses. Moses tries to comfort them. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. He reminded them that the proper fear of God deterred sin God was showing them he was not a domesticated deity, but a powerful, awesome, terrifying God. Nevertheless, the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Verses 22 and 23, Warning Against Idolatry Then, while this event is fresh in their minds, God tells Moses to pass on this message to the Israelites. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. He warns against idolatry because it makes no sense to make an idol in any shape since God is a spirit. Verses 24 through 26, Altars. The final instructions from God in this section relate to the type of altar he requires for the people to make their sacrifices on. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up on my altar by steps 
or your private parts may be exposed. Altars and sacrifice had been part been in place since the Garden of Eden. At this point, it was to be made of a mound of dirt with rocks. It was not to be fashioned with tools. He also makes the first reference to wherever I cause my name to be honored. This will ultimately be Jerusalem, but it will begin with Shiloh and then with Gibeon. Finally, even the way they dress when they make their offering was prescribed, so nothing profane would be associated with it. Because of who he is, only God has the authority to decide what sin is. We may come up with other lists. We may not feel the sins against God are on par with sins against people. We may not have included idolatry as a sin at all. Most of the world, even if they disapprove of adultery on some level, still shrug it off as a matter between two, or in this case, three people. But a holy God has written these things in order to convict us, to show us how we don't measure up. We don't have to go any farther than the first law to see we are lawbreakers. The standard is there, we see it, we are commanded to be holy as God is holy, and yet we cannot keep it fully and perfectly. Some of the laws relate to our inner being, as God sees all and expects true obedience, not lip service or hypocrisy. Our motivation is to be love, first to God, then to others. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus and the Gospels do we find in this chapter? God could have given the law to the Israelites while they were still in Egypt, but then they'd think their obedience was a prerequisite for their redemption. Instead, the law was given after they were graciously redeemed from slavery. Yet obedience is not unimportant. Our obedience to God's commands follows our redemption. We are not saved by keeping the law, but by the grace of God. The law was given on the third day, as God said. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, as he said. This is the only time it is recorded that God himself wrote something. In the New Testament, Jesus is only recorded once as writing anything. When he wrote in the sand when the woman was brought to him charged with adultery, it's believed he wrote some of the laws the accusers had broken, convicting them of their own sin. The law was written on tablets of stone. In the New Covenant, it is written on our hearts, enabling us to obey. God allowed people other than Moses to hear his voice. Prior to this, Adam and Eve, Cain, Hagar, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Rebekah, etc. heard it as well. Moses represents the law. Another person who heard his voice was Elijah, who represents the prophets. But this is the only time when two million people heard his voice at once. In the New Testament, God spoke from heaven three times to commend Jesus. Some say God wouldn't demand something we are incapable of doing, but he does. He set the standard of his law, which none of us can keep. We must admit we are helpless and hopeless and cry out for a Savior. In the New Covenant, we are commanded to repent and believe, but we are unable to unless God regenerates us. C.H. Spurgeon says, If the giving of the law, while it was yet unbroken, was attended with such a display of awe-inspiring power, what will that day be when the Lord shall, with flaming fire, take vengeance on those who have willfully broken that law? Hebrews 12.25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they 
did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? In the future, people will want the mountains to fall on them to cover them and hide them from his face. The people were afraid of God, but Moses told them God was testing them and teaching them to fear him, to keep them from sinning, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. They are his people, not just because of creation or the covenant with Abraham, but because he is their redeemer. We are likewise his because of creation, covenant, and redemption. The people wanted Moses to be the mediator between themselves and God. Jesus is the only mediator now. We looked at each law individually and saw how it carried over into the new covenant. Moses was the lawgiver. Jesus was the lawgiver and could supersede anything Moses said. He would say, you have heard, but I say to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Exodus chapter 21. May God bless the study of his word.